Well, today we're going to finish our three-week focus on the book of Malachi. So if you wouldn't mind turning in the book of Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is an interesting book, a very short book, four chapters, 55 verses. What does it have to say to us, especially during this Christmas season? And the two contrast here, do we have an empty religion or a vibrant faith? Empty religion, we go through the motions. We check the boxes, we show up, we even show some emotion at times, but it really is disconnected from knowing the true God. Sometimes we can go through the motions of so many things, but we're missing out on the heart and the fulfillment of Christ if we just go through the motions and yet we don't know our own Messiah. A vibrant faith. We've looked at how uh, the vibrant faith is connected with people how we interact in our own homes, how we interact with those in the community. We've looked at our possessions as he was uh, outlining uh, in his his second and fifth disputations that are in your handout. Um, And then today I want us to look at both the bookends of of this book. Uh, The very first five verses deals with God's love. And then the last portion of it deals with God's consistent care. This book is a a conversation of disputations, of criticisms, of, of trying to call the people back to repentance between a father and a rebellious child. And so, uh, today we'll look at the last of the six, dealing with God's love. How our worship is hindered if we don't connect to the truth of who God is. Last several weeks we've talked about worship is elevated by living and loving God's covenant of marriage, living and loving God's commitment to men, giving and growing our best and giving and growing our all. And today we'll start with this in chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Trusting and turning to God's promise of glorification and ultimately glorification of God. God's greatest love gift is that he gives us eyes to see how great he is. And draw us into that relationship that we, we can know him. We can be adopted by him. In verse 1 of chapter five, or chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Malachi, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And then in verse 2, he says, I have loved you. This is not a statement of I, I used to love you, I no longer love you. No, he's making a declarative statement says, listen, This is not something new. I have declared it clearly. I have loved you. Past tense. God's love for us isn't a fresh thing. It's not brand new. It has been forever. And he says here, God's love, get a past perspective. No matter what's going on now, God declared it. He didn't change his mind. He's not waffling on this. You know, when you make a declaration to the spouse when you're at the altar, you're saying, I love you. I'm committed to you. God has said that clearly to us in time past. I have loved you, he says in verse 2, says the Lord. But you say, talking to the people here of Israel, how have you loved us? I mean, show me. God said it, he meant it, and he's always showing it. But those who have a rebellious heart, those who struggle because they they want God's love, but they want to live their own direction, makes me wonder if you even know him. 
God declared his love and the people are either denying that God loves them or they're not recognizing how he loves them. The focus here is love and when you know God's love, you glorify him. And so this is kind of the focus, the criticism is you're not glorifying me. I've said I've loved you. You're not loving me back. You're not understanding my love for you. You're not glorifying me. In our day and age and, and certainly throughout many generations, there have been tragedies that have taken place that make people question whether God cares any longer. When you hear another school shooting or, or about a war that's come up or some injustice and people, even, even Christians, will say, well, where was God? Does God care anymore? Why is it, you know, here in this, this season of Christmas peace, there is so lack uh, around the world of peace? Does God not care any longer? Is he, is he pulled back his love? One of the verses that years ago assembled upon that has been very helpful to me, when understanding God's love, but his seeming absence or, or hands-off approach, and it's never that God has hands-off approach, by the way, but Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, has been a, just an encouragement to me that lets me know I don't have to know everything to trust God. In these verses, he says this very clearly. I want you to listen to it. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. There are some things in this world that are a secret, if you will. I'll use the language here. That are not to be understood by us. As a parent, there were times you spoke to your children in ways that says, you must trust me. But why are you doing that? It wouldn't take too long to explain it. And even if you did, they could not receive it. They could not understand there are ways and means of God that you and I can't always understand because we have a perspective of a, a mist of time in our generation. Yet God works in the totality of the entire course of history. One of my favorite things to do, especially during this time when my family comes back, some of my children enjoy this, some do not, is to put together a puzzle. You know, when they're really young, you put together the 10-piece puzzle. When they get a little older, you move up to the 100-piece puzzle. I just found something down in, in, the, uh, in a closet downstairs that has 1,500 pieces. I brought it home. That's going to be fun. The problem with us in, in, uh, with puzzles, for many of you, you might enjoy the process, but sometimes it's a little frustrating because you see a piece and you have no idea where it goes. It's more frustrating when you get done with 1,500 pieces and you found 50 of the pieces missing. That's probably what I'll find in this particular puzzle. But let me just under, help you understand. God puts all the pieces together, but sometimes we have sections of our life we understand, but we don't understand where these other pieces are supposed to fit. But the secret things belong to God. He is the one that has all of history organized and, and connected, and certainly there's ebbs and flows of how things go and how people respond and all those things, but God knows. And so when we, we get to situations where why is this happening in my life or why is this happening in the world, does God not care? 
Did he lie to us when he said he loved us, but now I'm experiencing this? No, he has never lied to you. You just can't understand right now why these things are happening. Just like when the disciples were watching their Savior die on a cross. They're like, why? This can't be right. Peter's backtracking from, from those who accuse him of being a follower. He, he's scared. He's having this emotional uh, tragedy in his life. The Lord I followed for three years now is being crucified, beaten. And, and now I don't know what to do. But in God's scheme of things, this was actually the perfect plan that he would crucify his son and rise him from the dead so you and I can have eternal life. There are some things that happen in the temporary that we may not understand, but in the course of history, at some point, you'll begin to see the whole picture of the puzzle, and you'll begin to understand why. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed, there are things that God has revealed to us that we should listen to and obey. And sometimes even the things we do understand, we don't do anything about. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's his nature. That's his character. When God says, I love you, it's not coming out of an emotion that he has. It's coming out of his character. He is love, and he's chosen to express that love to those who are undeserving of love. You and I. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, I love this verse. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. At what point is there an expiration date on God's love? I hate when I go to a restaurant with a coupon and I find out that it expired last week. God's love never expires. It's not going away. Therefore, for us who stand in the position of the Israelites sometimes, he says, I loved you. And you say, well, how have you loved us? I, I'm not experiencing that right now. I don't see that. Well, we believe his promises of love because he has declared it. In Luke chapter 11, verse 42, it says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. You do these things and, that you neglect justice and the love of God. You go through the motions, but you're neglecting to embrace, see, and, and demonstrate the love of God. Those you have, ought to have done, the, this tithing of mint and rue and herb, but you should do that without neglecting the others. If we do things without the love of God, it's a clanging cymbal, a sounding gong. It's just meaningless. You know, we consider the love of God. I, I, I like what Elizabeth Barrett uh, Barrett Browning uh, wrote, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. How many ways does God love us? There are, if we just open our eyes, we'd see. But this, this conversation is like a child who, who a parent says, I, I, I love you. Well, how do you love me? Well, I clothe you. Okay, well, what else? Well, I feed you. When you stop feeding them, they'll begin to recognize how important food is. I provide shelter, I, I've given you vacations, I've, I've given you hugs, I've, I've provided entertainment, education, protection. And the child still can look at that and say, what else? It's not good enough. Oh, how many times has God expressed love to us and we go, hmm, that's it? 
What else? What have you done for me lately? Oh, instead of embracing the love of God. God has declared it, and he has not changed his mind. God is still moving and working. Even if you, as you have drifted off or run away, God is still pursuing you and saying, I love you. Rather than questioning how have you loved us, why don't you just pause and begin to look and see, are you breathing? Are you clothed? There's common grace for all people. Embrace the love of God that he has expressed towards you. Well, let's move from the past to the present. In, in chapter um, 1, verse 2 through 4, we begin to see God's love expressed uh, through the present time. They're questioning how he's loved them in the past. Well, what about now? Is not Esau's, uh, Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but have, I have hated, uh, or Esau I have hated. Now, this is going to be fascinating as you look through this. Does that mean he loves one and not the other? There's a particular purpose he's using this language. I'll explain that in just a few moments. He says, I have laid waste his hill country and, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, in verse 4, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Oh, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Well, this doesn't sound like love at all. What do you mean? There's Jacob and Esau. How many of you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Lots of different portions of Scripture talk about Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Both of them were sinners in need of God's grace. All right, Esau, they were twins. You know, Esau was the red-headed one. He was the outdoorsman. He loved to hunt, fish, do all these things. Jacob, more of a mama's boy. All right, stay home. He learned how to cook, and he just did different things. There's nothing wrong with these things. Two different guys. But Esau was born first. And Jacob, he was known as the deceiver. That's just what his name means. And, and they weren't jiving. Well, one day, you know, they're getting to the point where there's going to be a blessing given by the father, which was very uh, significant in Hebrew culture. I'm going to bless my oldest. Esau's out hunting. And between Jacob and his mother, they devised a plan, deceiving, but still going through the process that they, they were going to trick the father who was blind. He couldn't see. They put hair on Jacob, you know, this, this all hairy, because that's what Esau was. He was a hairy man. Um, they got some food ready. They presented it to the father, and, and the father granted the blessing to Jacob, though it was to be given to Esau. Later, Esau ends up coming in. He wants, this is another story, but Esau comes in. He's starving, and Jacob's making some stew. I, I, I need some of that stew. Well, what is he willing to give up for, for the, the stew? He's willing to give his birthright. The very position that he has, when he'd get the blessing, he would get all of the, the, the direction of God's honor in this process. And Esau says, my temporary need of, of stew is more important to me than my birthright. Therefore, I'll sell you my birthright. I'll give it to you, Jacob, if you'll just give me some of the stew. Well, at the point that that takes place, God's blessing always goes with the Father's blessing and the birthright. And when God says, I keep my word, I'll always bless and be loyal to the one who receives the birthright, that is unchanging. And Esau became the leader of what are known as the Edomites who did not follow God. They're willing to sell it all out just for their temporary needs. And so 
this is a story. But remember these two boys? Both of them sought different directions. Now, Jacob had his time with God. He wrestled with God. He, he, he ended up getting a blessing and, and changing from, uh, uh, you know, from one direction to another and uh, where his heart was. Both of them were sinners. Both of them need grace. But one abandoned and one repented. And he had the birthright. He had the blessing. And God was loyal. So he's speaking to the people of Jacob here. And he's saying, listen. The reason Esau will never get my blessing is because they abandoned me and they didn't want it. They sold out the very birthright they could have been granted. But you have it. The reason they'll never succeed ultimately is because I'm loyal to you. They're not going to receive my blessing like you are. I said to in the past, I love you. I am showing you Always my loyalty is to you because of my love. They're saying, well, show us how you love me. Look at what happens to those who sold their birthright and go a different direction. They're not going to get my blessing. Fascinating point of, of Scripture and certainly could be unpacked more. But I want you to see when God puts his, his hand on you, he loves you. You may not always sense it. But God is loyal and he's not going anywhere. He is right there in the present working in and through your life. Like a good husband who chooses his bride and remains faithful to her, God chose Israel and proves his love every day to that nation. God was showing his love in the present, but he also shows that he has love for the future. I want you to look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see. That's a future tense. He used past tense. I have loved you. He's talking about what's happening now with, with the Edomites versus what's happening with Israel, Jacob. And then he talks about future. This God's, that, that God's love is limitless. Your eye, own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord. Future tense, you're going you're gonna to know my love so much in the future, you're going to be shouting, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are the ones who are inconsistent. God is always faithful. We can trust him. His love is unchanging. He keeps his promises. And when he says it, he'll fulfill it. Trusting and turning to God's promise of glorification. God will be glorified and we will love him. One day when we see him face to face, our love will expand even in this beyond this temporary time where we may waffle. But let me have you turn to chapter 3. We'll focus a little more. You, you see that God's love is consistent. But I want, you to, I want you to see the end, how these bookends of the book really talk about God's love, his care, and how that's going to be displayed. The last of the disputations, I'll just call this trusting and turning to God's promise of restoration. He's going to restore those who have drifted off from his love and his care. He's going to restore the remnant of his people. And you're going to see this in several places in the scripture from chapter 3 all the way to the end of chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 13, uh, what God will do. Well, first off, he's rejecting uh, the fearless. In verse 13, he says, your words have, have been hard against me. I mean, they're arrogant, one translation says. You've been arrogant against me. 
says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? I mean, how have we been basically hard against you? What, what, what are we doing? It's obvious, but they're uh, obstinate. You have said in verse 14, you have said, it is vain to serve God. I mean, we're going through the motions, but this is really worthless. And then they go on to say, what is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in uh, mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see the perspective here. They're saying, all right, God doesn't really care. God doesn't love us. We, we, we go through the motions. And he's not blessing us. He, 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 we don't see any of his love. Uh, we even see evildoers get away with the stuff that they do. So it really makes no difference whether we serve God, we follow him, or not. One of the biggest lies of any culture is that I can do anything I want and get away with it. You know, in the temporary time, Sometimes you do seemingly get away with things. My, 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 my boss didn't see me do that. My coworkers didn't catch me. My spouse didn't catch me. You know, my friends didn't see what I was doing. You know, I didn't seem to be any consequences. How many people will ultimately escape the wrath of God apart from Jesus? All things are known. All things are exposed. All things are either covered by grace or will be uh, counted against you apart from Christ. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21, it says, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. It may not be in the, in the short term, but the, uh, in the, when you, you have the long game in mind, as God does, nothing will go unpunished. That's why we plead the blood of Christ, because he took the punishment that we deserve. I stand here not as a, as a perfect person, but a broken person who acknowledged my sin is worthy of the wrath of God. But by God's grace, he sent a substitute for my atonement. He covers my sin and my failures with Jesus. Because an evil person will not go unpunished. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Even in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, let me throw this verse out there. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, listen to these words, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. There are a lot of imposters when it comes to the faith and those who are in the faith, the thing going, I, I just don't know. I don't see God's love. I, I, it just seems like everybody's getting away with everything. And why do I need to continue to be faithful? Maybe I should just give it up and walk away from the faith. He even says in Revelation, listen, there are many who, who say they're believers and they're getting away with things. But listen, if they don't have a relationship with me, I'll make them come and they'll bow down before you. And then they'll see how much I love those who truly loved me. He'll reject, reject the fearless. God will also remember the faithful. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They paid attention and heard them in a book of remembrance. Fascinating phrase here. Much more study could be done. But a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, these faithful ones, in the book. 
They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I will uh, make up my treasured possession and I will spare uh, them as a man spares his son who serves him. Yes, I'll reject the liars, the fearless, those who do not follow me, but I'll always remember the faithful. You know, God spared us as his own possession by sparing his own son for our sake. In verse 18, as he's concluding this section, moving into chapter 14, he says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, where God's love is placed, and between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Is it worth serving God? Is he, they're questioning in chapter uh, 3, verse 14. He says, you're going to see the difference of those who desire to follow me and those who do not. In chapter 4, verse 1, he continues on with the same thought. This isn't a break of, of thought. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise. Oh, there's the sun of righteousness is going to shine light. With healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Where does joy come from? Where does the, the leaping and, and, and jumping and praising God come from? When you understand how great God's love is for you. And you surrender to it. You follow Him. There is great joy in serving the Lord. Verse 3 goes on. And you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. There's a lot there, but I want to focus now on the last little portion. I don't want to walk away without understanding how God's love is expressed in our day and for all time. Here is where he restores the family. Even those who've wandered off with uh, know the Lord. It says, remember, in verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember. This was already established. Understand the statutes and the rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What a statement. This last phrase, he said, you know, since the, the beginning of, of your whole nation, I established that there will be a time that the entire family will be restored. That the family structure, that the father will turn his heart towards the children, the children's heart will be turned back to the father. And if you recall, there's a conversation here between God the father and his children, Israel. And they need to be turned back but, but let's like real practically how important the family structure is on a day-to-day -day basis that demonstrates the love God has for his children. You know, we have an epidemic in our culture that is devastating, that's ripping our country apart, and, and much of that has to do with uh, fatherless homes, absent fathers, fathers who don't care. 
Restoring the family must include fathers rising up and showing love and leadership for their children. And perhaps a lack of understanding of God's love has, has truly uh, been uh, the breakdown in our own society. God's love for his own children ought to be the demonstration of how fathers love their families. But earthly fathers are typically poor representations of who God truly is. We have a whole generation abandoning God because we've had a whole generation of fathers abandoning their families. Statistically, it's devastating. I want you to hear some of these things. Perhaps you're familiar with some. 20% of biological fathers have chosen not to be present for their children. I'm not speaking of divorced families where a father still wants to be involved on the weekends or something. That, that's not included. 20% of those biological fathers have abandoned their family, want nothing to do with the child that they're responsible for. Is there any wonder why there's brokenness in homes and children that are struggling with their own identity? 39% right now in 2021, 39% of first through 12th graders have no father in their home. A home without a father are four times more likely to live in poverty. Four times more likely. 91%. Man, if I took a test and got 91%, I'd be pretty excited. But this statistic is alarming. 91% of high school dropouts come from a home without a father. 90% of homelessness or runaway teens come from a fatherless home. 85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. 85%. What would take place if fathers knew the love of God and they expressed that in their homes? We would not be incarcerating or holding these teenagers in prison for the length of time they are because they would be growing up in a loving, healthy environment. Girls who live in a fatherless home are 100% at higher risk of pregnancy. Unwed pregnancy. Fathers, you are needed. Fathers, you are valuable. There's a generation that needs you desperately. It's time to rise up and be a father worthy of following. As you follow Jesus, lead your children to follow you, to follow Jesus. One of the things that uh, I posted several, several weeks ago when I ran across it, I thought this was interesting. You know, we deal with the, the incarceration or the high school dropouts or, or the various situations of poverty. But every one of those things will pass when all of us die. We will not be uh, struggling with that. The only thing that lasts is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you saved? Do you know him? Have you been forgiven? When you move from this earthly home to your heavenly dwelling, will that be in, in God's presence or will that be separated from, from him? And this statistic, these three statistics I share with you uh, ought to uh, raise great uh, alarm, but also have us change some focuses on how we minister to a family. 
We do a lot around here, in, 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 you know, in, which is important and strategic to reach kids. One of the reasons why we brought Tim Wilgeson is to be a family pastor. How can we reach more young families? How do we reach children for Christ? You know, it has uh, been stated that, that uh, the majority of salvations will happen before the age of 18. If you don't reach them before that, it's much more challenging in the adult years. Uh, and I understand that. And I look at that. And so if you reach children through a VBS program, you reach them through an Easter egg hunt, you reach them through the fall festival, and, and, and a child comes to Christ, fantastic. What happens to the family if the child is the first one to confess Christ? 3.5% of families will come and follow the lead of that child. 3.5%. A child gets saved. Will, will mom, dad, or siblings come to get saved? 3.5% of them will be saved. That's exciting. If the mother is reached first, if a woman starts going to church, she finds Christ, or starts inviting her husband or children, 17% of the family will be saved if the mother gives the lead. It's far better than the children giving the lead. I am thankful for children who come to Christ. But when they're leading their family, the statistical evidence is that they're not going to convince their whole family. When a woman steps up and she goes, I'm going to give my life to Christ, 17% of those families will follow her lead. If a man is the first in his family, if a father or a husband is the first to follow Christ in their family, do you know what the statistic is that the family will follow? 93%. A father has significant influence on his family. And so let's reach every child. Let's reach every woman in the community. Don't neglect the men. We need a men's ministry that far outpaces what we're doing currently. We need to re reach young men, but we need to start reaching the, the dads, the, the, the fathers, the husbands now because it will impact their family for life. That's why Tim Wilgus is here. He's the family pastor. He's not the children's pastor. He's not the youth He's the family pastor because we've got to step into the family. As the dad goes, most often the family goes. So let me give you another perspective, an additional vantage point. As he says, we're going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children's hearts to the father. I want you to see what it says uh, connected from um, Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 into the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. Many of you will be looking at the, the book of Luke for the Christmas story. And in Luke chapter 1... It speaks about in the days of Herod, king of Judea, in verse 5, there will be a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he will have a wife and his daughters Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And, and they're being told that the Messiah is coming. John the Baptist is preparing for, for, uh, for this later. Well, he's actually, you know, John the Baptist will be born. He'll be the forerunner. But they're preparing to tell you that John the Baptist is about to be born, and the birth of Christ, you know, is coming. And in chapter 1, as we, we read along, as John the Baptist is coming through, uh, through Elizabeth, 
It says in verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and, and fear fell, fell upon him. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John. This will be John the baptizer. And then he says, this, this baptizer that's coming, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Why are we so excited about John's birth? Because he is going to be ushering in the birth of Jesus in the forerunner. And he says, he goes on in verse 15, For he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he, actually he's going to have bugs and honey. How exciting. And then he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Well, that's great. What does that have to do with us today? Look at verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In Malachi, it speaks of this Elijah prophet coming, and he's going to help usher in the reversal, the, the remedy of the family, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children's hearts back to the father. John the Baptist, in the Christmas story, is that Elijah. And when Jesus comes, what's really taking place here? It's not just about your individual home having a dad in it. It's about... When Jesus came, he's restoring the family structure, saying the greatest promise, the one God has promised to fulfill, is that you are his children, and he's going to turn your heart towards him as, his, as your father. He is your heavenly father who loves you. His heart is already bent towards you. The goal of Christ was to come, ushered in by John the Baptist. I'm coming so that I may capture your heart and turn it towards God, your father who you've been missing, who you, you've not recognized his love. And God didn't just say, I love you. He sent Jesus to prove his love. The book of Malachi is this conversation between a father and his rebellious children, trying to turn their perspective, trying to turn their heart. But in reality, the entire Bible is a letter towards God's children trying to return your heart back to Him because it's a love letter to convince you there is no greater love in this world than God's love for you. Christmas is a story of love. God is sharp. God is clear. God's not messing around. He hates sin. But he put Jesus out there to die for your sin and says, I love you, except this infant who will grow to be a man who will die on the cross, who will rise from the dead so that you can come home to be with me for eternity.